This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, originating from Florida State's Winery in Land Lakes, Florida, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. Vice President and General Manager of Florida State's Winery, from coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235 and let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. That's right. And I am not Ron. <laughs> Uh, this is Mike, and this is all about wine. Ron is having some issues, which uh, maybe he's okay now, but um, yeah, that looks like could be his number. Let me see if I can bring him on here, and uh, we'll get the show going. I, I mean, we just got it started, so here we let me put him on. Hold on a second. Dun, dun, dun. Ron. It's me. Are you there? There yeah, you I'm go. Yeah, I'm here. Can, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, yes. boy. Uh, we, I... uh, we've been talking for about 15 minutes now about everything that I know about wine and uh, how we're doing here. So, uh, <laughs> I, so. Uh, Good way to start the year with this giving me issues. I, I, I hooked up to Skype earlier and I went to blog talk radio and everything looks fine. Everything's okay. And then when I tried to log in about a quarter till the hour, uh, it, it wouldn't get me into studio. No matter what I did, it wouldn't let me into the studio. I pulled up a second laptop, and it wouldn't let me in the studio. It just kept saying, you know, cannot connect, cannot connect. Finally, it gave me the studio screen, and when it did, I tried to connect through Skype, and it wouldn't let me in on that. It went, do-do-do, you know, sorry, you mm. cannot connect, and it hung up on me, and it kept doing that on both laptops. I'm going jumping back and forth between the two laptops trying to find one that's going to connect me. Neither one of them did. So I, mm. you went in and took the lead and talked yeah. about wine and I called in on the guest line. So I'm on the <laughs> guest line now. So I talked about wine about as far as I got about talking about wine was, I think Ron is calling. <laughs> that's, that's as far as I I, yeah. I had a couple of things I was. I had a couple of things I was going to mention just because they, they flew in through my email. And I go, oh, I can mention this, you know, and uh, in case he doesn't get on there. But uh, I even tried the direct connect uh, option, and it it acted like it was dialing, but nothing came through. I mean, I heard the I heard it dialing, and it would just sit there. And I tried doing a test and all this kind of stuff, and and nothing happened. And then it hung up, and it said, "How was your experience?" And I, I said, did the same thing. It didn't work. You know, yeah. it didn't work. And is it is it better or worse than Skype? I go, it's worse. I yeah. Mean, and, <laughs> I did the same thing. I, I the direct connect. I clicked on that and it dialed and nothing. I'm going all right. Wow. And then it said, No, sorry. How was your How was your experience? Yeah. I go horrible. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. yeah. I took so. I took a little survey. It was it wasn't very positive, but. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I had a couple. I was like, you know, if he, if he doesn't jump in here, I do have, you know, two products or something that I that I saw, but you know, maybe I'll I'll get that, but uh, we'll save it for next time. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. See, I'm using you're using Skype, which I used to use. I used that for years. I had a subscription, and you know, I I you know, I paid. I had my own phone number on it and everything, and I went through that. And then, then I found uh, Google Hangouts, and I've been using that for, I don't know, probably a year or so. Um, I need Twitch. And, and it, I don't think it's failed me yet, and, it's, and so far it's been free. I, I, I mean, there's like a credit thing, but I don't know where that came from. But, well, you know, it's the uh, same thing. I mean, it does, it does the yeah. credit thing. I mean, you can, you can give them yeah. money, and they put it there in case you want to do a call that yeah. costs you money. But, but I, never uh, gave, I never gave Google money for this so i don't know where that credit came from no so i'm just like it's telling me i have it's like 87 67 cents or something i go i don't know where that came from but you know i'll take it and i've been calling ever since with it so um no well use it make a call and use it uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that's right (laughs) i like to use my 87 cents please cut me off when i reach it yes (laughs) (laughs) is this malaysia okay great (laughs) okay yes cut me off at 87 cents (laughs) Uh, hello (laughs) click okay Okay, use that up (laughs) and then they call them yeah i'm trying to call dubai on my 87 cents and and i'm not getting anybody what's going on (laughs) (laughs) what's wrong what's wrong with this i thought you got yeah really that's all it takes dubai uh, or mumbai or south africa or someplace i'm trying yeah yeah yeah. mumbai there you go Um, mumbai yep so so uh hmm I am on, on, and uh, well, actually, I'm not. I am a caller, yeah. But operator was standing by, so I am connected. That's right. So That's if anybody, right. did you do the opening uh, sequence and all that? Yes. Yeah, did it, you? it played automatically. It said your your show will start in five seconds. I go, I'm not ready yet. As yeah. always, you know, we, <laughs> wait a minute now. Show, five, four, and I go. Then I go, what's going to happen? And all of a sudden, it muted me, and there's the intro. So. Oh, um, well, anyway. that works. I was sitting there. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a different computer. I'm doing everything I can. It just, it would not let me on. It still hasn't let me on. Technically, I'm, I'm still, yeah. you know, I'm a guest. I you also. Know, oh, oh, well. hmm. I don't know. I don't know Maybe. what the issue is. I, I just, hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I don't think it's Skype. It may be a combination of Skype and Blog Talk Radio. Every time I click on Skype. It says, look at all the new stuff we've done for you, you know, and then it has a list of about five or six things. I click out of that, and it probably gets mad because I click out of that, and then, you know, so. Hmm. That could be it. I could you be. You watch all the ads, and yeah, watch all the ads, and then it'll let you on, so. Yeah, yeah, there are some amount that are like that, too, so, yeah. Well, you know, I guess we should jump into the meat of things since we've already killed a half hour. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you tune in at okay. seven, sorry for the dead air for twenty minutes or however long it was. Right. Yeah. And uh oh yeah. boy, what uh, well if you're listening to this and you're in the northeastern United States, hope you are warm and safe. And uh because it is nasty cold up there. I mean I was watching some of the weather reports up there and oh my gosh, I'm I feel a little bit better about our Arctic weather down here and seeing that. So. But uh, January, January the 4th, uh, we got 
National Hot Tea Month in January, National Soup Month, National Oatmeal Month, National Bread Machine Baking Month, National Slow Cooking Month. All this is in January. Tomorrow, National Whipped Cream Day, which I think we got some whipping cream in our refrigerator that was going to be used for something and never was. We should just whip up a batch of whipping cream and eat it. Um, Saturday, National Bean Day. It's also National Shortbread Day. So have yourself some bean soup with some shortbread on Saturday and open up a bottle of rosé. That would go good with it, I think. Sunday, National Tempura Day, T-E-M-P-U-R-A. What's tempura? I don't know. Engineer, do you know what tempura is? I've heard of it. Oh, likely battered fried things. These Portuguese dish uh, brought to and popularized by Japan, consisting of seafood or vegetables that have been battered and deep fried. Oh, okay, there you go. So so like chicken tenders. Yeah, yeah, only with shrimp and stuff. That's even better. (laughs) So National (laughs) Tempura Day is Sunday, so, you know, lightly batter and deep fry some of your veggies and seafood and have yourself some Gewurztraminer with it. There, you, That would be a good combo, I think. And then coming up Monday, National Hot Tea Day, which is in the middle of National Hot Tea Month, which, you know, with the temperature we're having, that's probably a good thing to have a hot tea. Tuesday, National Oatmeal Day, and which is a double whammy since it's National Oatmeal Month. So get yourself some oatmeal. And it's never too early to have wine, so have yourself a nice light Pinot Gris or something with your oatmeal. Wednesday, the 10th, National Bittersweet Chocolate Day. Now, there's a whole bunch of wines you can open up with that, so don't limit yourself on that. There's lots of things you can do. And then next week, the 11th, since we won't come on until late, and I hope I'll get the issues figured out of the machine by then, National Hot Toddy Day. You know, it's uh, hot toddies with apple cider, honey, lemon, cinnamon sticks, and cloves. And there you go. I don't know a wine that would go with that, but that might be nice to make a hot toddy out of a, some IPA beer or something. So there you go. Then a week from tomorrow is National Glazed Donut Day, so that's something to look forward to even. So that's what's coming up on our what am I going to eat with my wine for the next week. There you go. A few things to talk about tonight, a few ons and ends as always. Uh, let me find some. I saw something here. And I This, I, I was doing some first-of-the-year cleaning at the winery. came across this article. And it says, industry and consumers weigh in on proposed wine label changes. It says, under changes proposed by the uh, TTB, wine labels would have to state whether any major food allergens were used in finding and clarifying wines. Major food allergens include milk, eggs, fish, Cretaceous shellfish, tree nuts, wheat, peanuts, and soybeans, as well as most ingredients containing proteins derived from these foods. The proposed changes seek to make beverages containing alcohol subject to the laboring requirements of the Federal Alcohol Administration Act. Okay, now this was in 
a magazine, like I say, I was doing some purging, uh, the Vineyard and Winery Management magazine. And it said that uh, this is this was coming up. This is the May-June issue of 2007. Over 10 years ago, they were stating that, that that, you know, should go into effect and all that. Ten years later, we're still debating if we should put all that stuff on wine labels or not, and it's not there. Now, according to this article, it was passed. It should be how you know how are people are going to handle it, what they're going to do with it, uh, how is it going to be implemented. Obviously, it wasn't passed because people aren't handling it and aren't implementing it and aren't doing anything with it. So, uh, uh, you know, it's. It's just an ongoing thing. I, I mentioned, you know, wine labeling and what they're going to do and ingredient requirements and all that. I, I bring that up all the time. But here, over 10 years ago, an article in the paper is talking about it or an article in a magazine talking about it. So I, maybe I should give it a rest until it actually does happen and they pass it. But there's so many strong winery lobbies out there and there's so many wineries and all that. I really don't see it happening with any of the um, rules and regulations of Congress that we have now. So I'm going to give it a rest for a while whenever I start seeing these articles, unless it's actually something that is passed, not just suggestions of it passed, or as is the case in some cases, not suggestions, but somebody coming out and saying, we need all this on the wine label. We need to know what we're drinking. You know, I'm just going to ignore it until something does happen. Shipping laws. Uh, what do you need to know about shipping alcohol and receiving alcohol? All right. This is an ongoing thing. New rules started out the very first of the year here. Uh, there's a bunch of social media stuff, articles, posts, and all that, saying that the days of wine, uh, shipping alcohol are over. Actually, Nothing's changed. Very little, actually. Uh, there are a few different rules. Uh, Missouri scaled back on its rules governing out-of-state sh- retail shipments, but that's no big deal, really. Uh, nothing has changed in the direct-to-consumer regulatory landscape in quite a few months. Uh, this is from Jim Ager, who is the Vice President of Business Development and Marketing at Direct Wine, or Wine Direct, rather, Wine Direct. Uh, according to Matt Mann, Wine Direct's general counsel, there has been sim- there has simply been heightened scrutiny by the state regulators, including places like Illinois, Michigan, and New York. No change in the laws or anything. They're just starting to look at it a little closer. Um, Instead of managing individual orders and shipping a case from, say, California to the East Coast, a winery will turn to a company like Wine Direct, which will warehouse and manage the logistics on its behalf and then ship it around the country. A state may see a sale coming from Wine Direct rather than a winery, but that could raise a red flag, uh, which means added scrutiny by FedEx, UPS, uh, or any of the others that are smaller names out there. Uh, UPS and FedEx are saying they want to be more compliant and they are being much more active to ensure that they're delivering from the properly licensed entities to the proper places, which I got a couple letters from 
FedEx and UPS saying, new rules, new years, new laws. We need to keep up to date, read them and sign it and all that stuff. And both of them, I use them both periodically. And I'm sure most wineries around the area have, or around the country have. The uh, online shipping is direct-to-consumer shipments of alcohol amounted to $2.33 billion in 2016. I am sure it will surpass that by quite a bit in 2017. Online sales for all goods, including alcohol, exceeded $341 billion in the same period. Uh, so alcohol's lagging behind that, but, of course, there's all sorts of rules and regulations and exceptions and stuff that could cause that problem. Amazon Prime has set off a shift. People, says Agar, who's the uh, from Wine Direct, people want fast and free, but the weight of full bottles of alcohol combined with added alcohol shipping fees and requirements, which includes the adult signature card, results in higher carrier rates. And so Amazon Prime and a lot of these others aren't picking up the tab for some of these. That could a case of wine with your signature on it and the different things that are required by it is going to run you around forty five dollars to sixty dollars shipping, depending on how far it's gone and stuff like that. So you're looking at a lot of money added onto it. Congressional Bill Number HR four oh two four was introduced in October 2017 to allow the United States Postal Service to mail alcohol. That could reduce some shipping fees, but it can also create other problems. Uh, the bill's movement has been slow through the the, the house or through uh, the house where it was introduced, so that might slow it down a bit. It is a three-tier system in the United States which requires uh, that the producer sells his or her product to an in-state wholesaler who in turn sells it to an in-state retailer who then sells it to a customer. Uh, That's the three-tier system, but it differs uh, so much through each state and uh, areas and stuff like that that you really, uh, it's, it's, it's so many variables. The Supreme Court and the case Granholm opened up things a little bit, holding that it's a viola- violation of the Commerce Clause. Now, if you will refer back to an episode we did, and I want to say a year and a half ago, I don't know when, I talked to an ex-state representative, a state of Florida representative, and we were talking about the Commerce Clause, and we were talking about wine shipping and all that. It was an interesting show. He, he was... He brought us some good stuff. It was fun. If you uh, have not heard that show, uh, check it out in uh, uh, in the All About Wine website, and it has archived episodes. You can go back, and Mike has them marked very well, so it's easy to find them. But listen to that, because he's talking about the Commerce Clause. He said the Commerce Clause is something that we can probably get wine shipment based on that, but the Supreme Court ruled in the Granholm case that the Commerce Clause states, uh, or it's a violation of the Commerce Clause if a state permits in-state wineries to ship directly to consumers, but restricts out-of-state wineries from doing the same. 
this decision, though, was lim- limited to domestic wineries, those in the United States. And that's why the most favorable interstate shipping rules are for U.S. wineries. Forty-four states permit some interstate direct-to-consumer shipping of alcohol. This is from Wines and Vines and uh, their rule book, uh, the big fat Bible that I get. The states that do not allow it are Utah, Mississippi, Alabama, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, and Delaware. Kentucky permits it, but has steep penalties for delivering to a dry district, so most shippers into Kentucky don't do it. They avoid it. Seven states allow out-of-state breweries to make direct-to-consumer sales. Uh, those are Nebraska, Ohio, Virginia, North, uh, or New Hampshire, North Dakota, Vermont, and Oregon, as well as the District of Columbia. And then only three states allow out-of-state distilleries to make direct-to-consumer sales. That's Nebraska, New Hampshire, and North Dakota. Boy, New Hampshire, Nebraska, and North Dakota are pretty liberal in all their shipping stuff there. That's, that's cool of them. The retail side is a bit more limited, though. Uh, consumers can go online and find all sorts of retailers that are willing to ship, regardless of interstate rules. Although most states allow some form of interstate retail shipments, uh, only 13 permit out-of-state shipments. With three of them, California, Idaho, and New Mexico, is reciprocal, which means that uh, they each allows the other retailers to sell into the state. So um, ultimately, it's on the shippers. You need to check to be sure that you can get it shipped to you. Uh, ask the, the wineries, ask uh, whoever you're ordering it from if it can be shipped to you and if they will ship it to you because the re- the shippers, the the people who do the wine or the spirits, whatever, is the ones that ultimately pay the penalty for getting caught doing something illegal. Uh, the delivery apps that they have are like a fourth tier. Uh, you know, you have your three-tier system, delivery apps, puts it in there as a fourth tier, they're referred to it as. Uh, Drizzly, D-R-I-Z-L-Y, and Thirsty are a couple of successful apps. Uh, There are others out there also. Uh, These websites and apps are not liquor stores, but unlicensed marketing companies. These sites work uh, the way that FTD does with flower shops. All right, a consumer visits the website or uses the app to place an order. The website or app immediately sends the order to a retailer, one of a number in the consumer's local area. The retailer is asked electronically whether it would like to accept and fulfill the order. After the acceptance of the order, payment goes to the retailer, not to a third-party website or the app. It goes directly to the retailer. Then the retailer packages the product and delivers it to the consumer. In return for marketing products and driving consumer traffic to the retailer, the website or app takes a licensing fee from the retailer. So that puts, like I say, another another person in the loop, another person in the app. And the winery is going to do it, but the winery, instead of sending it to a distributor, will be sending it to a app, which will then pick up a third party.
party, which is the retailer. Uh, Third-party marketing companies are a game-changer for the retailers. Rather than spending funds on marketing local and trying to get people to come in, they can increase sales simply by being located in an area where consumers want alcohol delivered directly. According to Drizzly CEO Nick Realis, orders from Drizzly can represent anywhere from 5 to 50% of a retailer's sales. And I tell you, for some retailers, 50% increase, increase is substantial. So that's what's happening. 2018 is going to see some more changes, as it has in the past, but it will continue to do so. It's... Uh, Still a few states out there, like I said, there's still six states out there that haven't completely opened up shipping, and those are the ones that they're looking at now. But Drizzly, if you're in an area that's close to some liquor store or something, something might check out and see how that works in your area if you're looking for anything particular. But that is the shipping news now out there for... Uh, Let's see, is that the date I want here? That's the date I want there. Yeah, very good. I'm on top of this. All right. Um, Washington State has four new AVAs, American Viticultural Areas. Uh, they are, let me find this here. They're American Viticulture. You know, it's amazing to me. I ask people all the time, at the winery, if they know what an AVA is. 99% of the people have no idea. It's just amazing that people don't know what an AVA is. Uh, Same thing with the vintage date on a bottle of wine. I ask people all the time, do you happen to know what that date is? And I get guesses of when it was bottled and, and, you know, some people say when it was distributed and all, all sorts of different. Very few people, very, very few people say the year the grapes were picked. And, uh, you know, that's somewhat important to know some of this stuff. And, and I'm always surprised that people don't. Uh, I, I think to myself, why are we worrying about doing AVAs? Why are we worrying about doing vintage when, especially in, in, in the 7 to 15 7 to $20 range where most people buy wines, why is a vintage date on it? People don't know what it means anyway. Uh you know, they look at it 2015, they go, well, that's only a couple of years old. We need to get an older one. So they grab a 2014, having no idea why, but they, they do that. And I, I am constantly questioning, why do we worry about the vintage dates on these bottles? Why is, why is that something we even concern ourselves with? But it's, it's still on there. ABAs, American Viticultural Areas is another thing that's on bottles that people have no idea what they are or anything about it. But Washington State has proposed four new appellations. Now, they should be approved reasonably soon here. They were, one of them was, uh, the application was put in January 24th, 2017. So that, that was it. But they, uh, they are in the order of submitted was Candy Mountain, Royal Slope, the Burn of Columbia Valley, and White Bluffs. Candy Mountain would be a new sub-appellation of the Yakima Valley. 
And in turn, Yakima Valley is the sub-appellation of Columbia Valley. So, you know, it shows you, you know, AVAs within AVAs within AVAs. A lot of those in California, Napa, Sonoma, areas like that. Here's some more here. The Candy Mountain is located just north of Interstate 75, west of Richland, uh, along the ridge of Red, Red Mountain, Badger Mountain, Little Badger Mountain. Uh, it was collectively called the Rattles uh, due to the alignment of the Rattlesnake Mountain. 815-acre Candy Mountain would be the smallest application of Washington State, and most of its acreage lies on the mountain's southwestern slopes. Uh, 53.7 acres are planted in wine grapes. Largest vineyard is Candy Mountain Vineyard, and the... Uh, uh, winery, the only winery that's located in that is Kitsky Cellars, K-I-T-Z-K-E, Kitsky Cellars. Uh, not going to say that ap- uh, application was accepted on January 24, 2017. <coughs> Excuse me. The next one, Royal Slope, would be a new sub-application of the Columbia Valley also, um, located in East Central Washington, uh, Highway 26 is custom center of it, located between Ancient Lakes ABA and Royal Slope's northern boundary. So uh, it's a rather large one, 156,389 acres with more than 1,400 acres planted in wine grapes and includes 13 commercial vineyards along with uh, one winery, Foxy Roxy Wines. Uh, it is, uh, let's see, uh, uh, that area, this is interesting of note, Stone Ridge was the source of the fruit for the 2006 Charles Smith Royal City Syrah, which received a 100-point rating uh, at Wine Enthusiast magazine. So uh, that's impressive in itself, uh, 100-point rating from Wine Enthusiast. That application was accepted April 14th of this last year. Then we got Burn of Columbia Valley Appalachian, which would be located south central Washington, west of Sundell. Uh, it lies west of the Horse Haven Hills AVA, and it's a bench above the Columbia River. Uh, the name Burn is referred to the area since the early 1900s. Uh, just because, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it was a. Oh, I don't know. Maybe the area burned down at then. They started calling it the burn area. Uh, there are 16,870 acres in this appellation. 1,261 are planted in grapes, Cabernet Sauvignon being the majority. Uh, it was accepted, uh, application was accepted on October 31st, 2017. And then the White Bluffs would also be a new sub-appellation of the Columbia Valley. That was proposed uh, uh, in the, located in south-central Washington, north of Lichen by the Columbia River, and uh, it encompasses 93,738 acres. 1,127 are planted in vine. Uh, and the application 
was is well known for a couple of vineyards and has clear uh, clar c l a a r cellars is the only winery located in it that was submitted november seventh twenty seventeen Washington currently has fourteen approved a v a s uh this will expand it to eighteen the first being Yakima valley approved in eight, 1983, and the latest was approved in 2016, which is Lewis-Clark Valley, which Washington, Idaho shares in that area there. So it's uh, new ones that will be coming in soon, and there's others that are looking at being submitted this year. Uh, a couple more subdivisions of Columbia Valley. But Columbia Valley is so big, they can divide that thing up a hundred times and still call it Columbia Valley. Uh, so if you, it's, it's, winemakers continue to source fruit throughout the Columbia Valley and blend it together to create wine. And there's no doubt the Columbia Valley designation continues to have value, but it's there with the new sub-appellations, it's giving a little bit more pinpoint a little bit more respect for the area. So that's coming in. A new ABA was approved right before the holidays. It was uh, Petaluma Gap in California. That was, uh, uh, let's see if I have this here. I do, I do, I do. Uh, technology, applications. Uh, Petaluma Gap, there we are. Uh, Petaluma Gap AVA is, if it loads here for me, is the newest AVA. It was approved December the 7th of this year. Uh, it is uh, the uh, north coast uh, in the uh, great growing region in southern Sonoma County, north of Marin County. And Marin County is just north of San Francisco, so it's just it's right up the coast there. 4,000 acres of vineyards. Uh, it is a $200,000 acre region. 75% are planted in Pinot Noir, with the rest of it equally planted in Chardonnay and Syrah. Uh, other grape varieties are less than 1% of the, of the variety. So if you see a Petaluma AVA popping up uh, on a bottle of wine, uh, it's uh, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, or Syrah. That's, that's pretty much it there. Uh, the uh, uh, let's see, that's talking about the alliance that submitted it, and I could care less about the alliance that submitted it. So uh, that's the newest one. Uh, it was the final rule was published on December seventh, twenty seventeen. Uh, it was submitted on February twentieth or February twenty fifteen. So took almost two years for that to be approved there. But that is the newest AVA that we have. Uh, and let's see. Oh, I read that last week. I told you about that last week. Uh, let's see. Oh, I know it. This is, uh, I want you to listen to an art, uh, a little thing here. And it's, uh, let's see. This 
will play. I will let you listen to it as soon as it loads and plays here. Uh, this is a glass of wine may help you live longer. So here we go. As soon as it loads, and there we go. Nope, we got a advertisement that I can skip here in 12 seconds. And as soon as I skip this advertisement, I will let you listen to this little video here. Okay, there we go. A glass of wine or a pint of beer a day makes you live longer. Well, all the more reason to drink. So let's talk stats. Testing more than 300,000 people, researchers at a university of public health in China found that like to moderate drinkers are 20% less likely to die early of any cause, especially heart disease. Women who had 3 to 14 drinks a week were 20% less likely to suffer a premature death and 34% less likely to die of heart disease. Men who had that same amount of drinks per week benefited by 13% and 21%. But let's not lose our minds here and start binge drinking. Heavy drinkers are still at more risk of dying early and or getting cancer, liver disease, and heart disease, according to the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Male heavy drinkers are at more risk by 25% when having more than 14 drinks a week and an increased risk for cancer by 67%. And for women, apparently the number was so small that it wasn't considered significant. Hey, is that discrimination? Nah, I guess that's fine. But either way, moderation is key to a successful lifespan. And there you go. So it can. That's 14 drinks a week maximum. That's two a day uh, for those who are math challenged. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have 14 drinks on Monday and then 14 drinks the following Monday. That is average out to two a day, and it can expand your life and fight cancer and all that. But then once you pass that 14 drinks a week, your chances of cancer and other serious stuff jumps up a lot so try to keep it moderate and then you'll live a long and prosperous life all right uh, oh here we go this is something that i saw this a couple of different places and i had an article on a paper i saw and I, for some reason i lost the article i looked all over for it but then i found it on my site here where I get all my wine industry news and wine glasses are seven times larger today than they were 300 years ago the article that I saw said they're six times larger today than they were a hundred years ago so you know it's either way it's it's a major growth in the size of wine glasses if you feel wine glasses there bigger than they used to be, you're right. Uh, new British research suggests that wine glass sizes have been increasing since at least the 1700s when they were only about a seventh of the size they are today. You uh, don't have to be that old to notice the difference. A study found that wine glass sizes in the U.K. have actually increased most rapidly over the past two decades. That's only 20 years, my friends. The findings came from scientists at the University of Cambridge who looked at measurements of 411 wine glasses dating as far back as 1700. 
although the 18th century wine glasses had an average capacity of 66 milliliters, by the 1900s, the average wine glass held 230 milliliters. And in the 2000s, the average size had ballooned to 416 milliliters. Specifically looking at glasses from the past two years, the current average was found to be 449 milliliters. Now let's put this in perspective. A bottle of wine is 750 milliliters, okay? So half of that is only going to put you at 325. I'm sorry, not 325, 375. So 375 milliliters is a half a bottle. You're looking at the average wine glass now at 449. Now, that's the average. There's plenty of change in the 300 years. That's why both glasses and wines are made and appreciated so differently now. But the increase in wine glass size many times over changes in several factors, including the price, technology, social wealth, wine appreciation. All these factors come into this change of wine glass. The technological and financial resources that make wine glasses possible also affect wine aficionados and remind you that the wine glass is not to be filled to the top. The extra room at the top is to swirl it and all that. But separate research suggests that the larger glasses lead to more consumption. Whether it's meant to or not, it is a fact. One, uh, the findings suggest that the capacity of wine glasses in England increased significantly over the past 300 years, said Dr. Zorana Zupan, one of the study's authors. Uh, since 1900, the size has increased rapidly. Whether this led to the rise in wine consumption in England can't say for sure, but a wine glass 300 years ago would only hold about half of today's small measure, which in the UK is 125 milliliters, which is only about four ounces, 125 milliliters. We're saying the average glass today is five. I mean, so the glasses then were only 125 milliliters. That was four ounces to the top. You're going to get four ounces, all four ounces into it. Um, the lead researcher, Teresa Martu, who is actually the director of the Behavioral and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge, looked at it a little bit differently here. She said, wine will no doubt be a feature of some merry Christmas nights and holidays, but when it comes to how much we drink, wine glass size probably does matter. At the very least, if you're trying to be responsible about your drinking, understanding the possible ramifications of the size of your glass is worth keeping in mind. So we've seen the wine glasses that will hold a bottle or more or that hook right onto a bottle and all this stuff. Not really, not really good for you. Uh, remember, 14 drinks a week is going to let you live longer, any more than that. And a drink is five ounces, and so one bottle of wine is over a little over five glasses. So during a period of a week, not even three bottles of wine. So keep that in mind. Just just uh, put that in a little bit perspective for you. Uh, okay, and let's see something else here. 
I had things I wanted to talk about, and I got on so late that I'm going to just go ahead and talk about some of these. Um, Nebraska, and this is just a just a quick thing here. We're going to have to visit Nebraska again in the future, but Nebraska is really doing a lot with their wine business. Uh, they've had a very good year. Uh, Nebraska Wine and Grape Growers Association it says that Nebraska 2017 has been the best year out of Nebraska. Excellent, great quality, and great yields. Uh, the wineries had an $873 million impact on the state this past year, which is substantial for a little state like Nebraska. Nebraska has about 100 grape growers and 31 licensed winery with a total annual wages of uh Two and a half million dollars. So, uh, non- yeah, two and a half million dollars. Uh, eight and a half million dollar annual tourism from the wine visits, and uh, shows that the state business and consumption tax revenue totaled more than fifty-four million dollars. Uh, the state has nearly one hundred and eighty acres of vineyards, and Nebraska, like most all other states do not have enough vineyards to satisfy all the wineries. So if you are looking at planting grapes somewhere, Nebraska is one of your options there. They can use some grape growers there. But Nebraska did a phenomenal job this last year, a phenomenal job on that uh, uh, on the wine business. The Wine industry is always looking for cold weather grapes, and they Minnesota University of Minnesota has been breeding grapes for quite some time. And this January, uh, they have uh, new grapes that they're going to be putting out, or that have been out, that uh, they're going to see how weathers through the cold winter and in uh, different wineries. They have 60-plus wineries in Minnesota, by the way. There's quite a few of them out there. Uh, The wine grape breeding program began in the mid-'70s up there in Minnesota and has built itself into one of the top wine grape research programs in the country. University of Minnesota grapes are being used all over the place in cool weather. Uh, developing high-quality, cold-hardy, and disease-resistant wine grape cultivars. Uh, they've came up with such varieties as Marquette, Frontenac Gris, and La Croissant, which whenever we talk to wineries in cold weather, we always hear those grapes pop up, those names. Uh, the research centers in Excelsior, uh, more than 12,000 experimental vines are cultivated on 12 acres there. And uh, they've continued to test these. The cold climate grape growing and winery industry is estimated to have a $401 million economic impact nationwide. Since Frontenac was released in 1996, producers in 12 states have planted it, and 5,400 acres of cold-hardy grapes are now planted in the United States. Um they have a white wine grape released in 2017 called uh, Itasca, I-T-A-S-C-A, Itasca, Itasca, 
Itasca. The grape was considered lower acid, 30%, than any other cold-hardy grape before, and has shown better cold-hardiness and is disease-resistant. And, best of all, it leads itself well to a dry white wine that they haven't been able to come up with in Minnesota so far. Uh, Itasca, I will pronounce it until I find out otherwise, uh, will be a winemaker's grape, uh, great on its own, useful in blending, lower in acid, lacking in herbaceous all flavor, and great to the winemaker's artistry, said Matthew Clark, who is an assistant professor of breeding grapes. Um, The uh, program continues to flourish, and they're looking at releasing other grapes in the near future. So uh, great program. I, we've talked to a lot of people who are using the University of Minnesota grapes, the cold hardy grapes, that and University of uh, or Cornell University. Uh, those two have really came through on the, um, the cold weather grapes and that's being used in this country. Cold snap leads to some ice wine harvest in Michigan. Uh, the uh, cold snap that's sitting all over, they still had grapes on the vine, which is unusual. Many people prefer to stay indoors in the cold. Icy temperatures are perk for the northern Michigan winemakers. Uh, Chateau Chantel picked their frozen grapes uh, on the um, morning a couple of days after Christmas. Uh, They've left them on the vine, and this is their seasonal uh, grape picking. They have the ideal temperatures to go out and pick them while they can. Uh, Chateau Chantel is in Traverse City, and the cold weather is just part of living there. It's a unique climate that allows them to make ice wine almost every year. Uh, they do take a risk of leaving the fruit on the vine, but when they get that deep freeze, it makes it all worthwhile. They pick more than 650 pounds of frozen grapes, and they got them inside, and they are now pressed and fermenting to make their famous ice wine. So the pressing it down in a couple of days, let all the solids settle out. Then they will do the racking and then pump the clear juice off the top and ferment the clean juice. Excuse me. It takes months to ferment rather than just weeks, so it doesn't have an extended time process. But after that, it requires a little bit of extra aging, and then it's ready to go. Uh, they say that they're making ice wine so much that they are starting an ice wine festival, which will be held on January the 26th. So, uh, and if it takes months, they must be releasing the previous years. So, um, ice wine festival up in Traverse City, something to keep in mind if you are up in that area and if you are so inclined to go outside the door with 25 layers of clothing on to go to an ice wine festival, then that's coming up on the 26th. And then one last thing I want to cover with you here uh, tonight. Uh, It is our first program of 2018, and I want to run through a list here just quickly of some of the names in the wine industry that have passed away in 2017. There are some some names that you've probably never heard of. There are some here that you're going, oh, wow, I've heard that before. I know him. But let me quickly go through this. Henry Louis Burrell. 
He's the father of the Roan star Louis Burrell, and uh, he started the Chateau de Saint Combes in France. Mark Bixler, uh, the Kistler Winery co-founder and Sonoma. Davis Bynum, he was a reporter who turned venter and made the Russian River Valley's first single vineyard Pinot Noir. I'm sure you've heard of the Bynum wines. Don Carano, he is the founder of the Ferrari Carano. He was a casino owner and hoteler, and he built a temple to wine in Sonoma and helped elevate the region's Chardonnay. L. Pierce Carson, a Napa newspaper uh, a man that helped chronicle the wine industry's rise in Napa. Uh, Domenico Calico, uh, one of Borello's so-called modernists, uh, he passed away this past year. Jean-Luc Ledoux, a sommelier wine retailer and mentor uh, who was part of the New York wine scene. Patricia Green, uh, Patricia Green Sellers, uh, was a winemaker. An apparent accident, uh, unexpectedly, this past year. She was uh, rather young in her upper 40s. Seth Cunnan founded two Santa Barbara wine brands and was a leading member of the growing venture community there. Debbie Lewis, along with her husband, found uh, a second career in wine and landmarked Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, um, wine of the year. Patrick Marteau, uh, Bordeaux leader, and revitalized the fourth growth at Chateau Bonaire. Dennis Martin, a California native uh, who worked at Fetcher, was a winemaker at Fetcher for many years. Tom May, owner of Napa's famed Martha's Vineyards, who grew grapes exclusively for Heights Cellars, uh, which was has became a, a, a phenomenal name in the business. John Rowley, uh, oyster guru who brought us Cooper River salmon, sweeter fruit, and Olympic oysters on the half shell. Chris Silva, St. Francis's charismatic president for Sonoma Winery for two decades. George Vernet, a Rhone venter who bought Vernet back on the brink, from the brink of a Richard Ward, Saintsbury co-founder, with a leader, was a leader in California pursuit of Burgundian grape greatness. Bob Wilmers, charming and intelligent New York banker and owner of Bordeaux Chateau Haut Bailey. So there's just some names that we've lost in this past year, some big names in the wine. And it's hoping that 2018 will not be so cruel to us in some of those areas and keep people around to pass on their knowledge for a few more years. And mm-hmm. I think we're done. Ah, okay. <laughs> that was, a, unfortunately, a, sh- a short um, <laughs> show, but we'll catch up to it next week for sure. Um, yeah. yeah and the, the first show of 2018. I thought, uh, when, did, when was our uh, our – anniversary of the first show. I know it was in 09, I guess, on here. Was it yeah. in January? 
the okay. ninth. I, I've okay. always thought it's been the ninth, yeah. So yeah, I'm, so. I'm thinking I'm thinking next week is okay. It would be our so anniversary be show. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I need to put some clips together and maybe we can uh, hear what our first show sounds like again. Part there you it. go. <laughs> like, That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tune in for our anniversary. Yeah. So it's the 11th. I mean, I suppose you're supposed to celebrate yeah. anniversary before the dates and not after, but the 9th is closer. So the 11th. So yeah. we'll celebrate it after. But yeah, that would well, be good. cool. Okay. You can put some yeah. clips together about, about the first show or, you know, yeah. around that time. And the first show on Ball uh, Talk Radio, actually, we started before that, but we'll talk about that next week. Uh, right. So tune in next week to get a little bit of reminiscing about some of our first shows and about yeah. all about wine. This is, this is, we started in nine, this is eight and nine years. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I know. <laughs> I know. Long that time. is. That um, really is. Yep. And, um, uh, Okay, then I guess we will close out tonight, and we'll see everybody on uh, January 11th, uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on Blog Talk Radio. And um, thank you all for tuning in, and have a great week, and enjoy, um, <laughs> what was it, National Whipped Cream Day tomorrow, and uh, yeah. <laughs> all the other days. Yeah. <laughs> all the other days during the week, yeah. But, you know, if you enjoy want to hold off, donut day is a week from tomorrow, so, you know. National Blaze Donut Day is a week from tomorrow. So uh, that's another good one. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds good. We've so, all next thank week. Thank you all very much. In. Hope you had a safe New Year, and we'll look forward to talking to you all this year. And uh, <laughs> yep. We'll we'll, start. Uh, Yay! Yay! <laughs> so I I I actually get to leave first here because I'm a guest. And that's right. Um, <laughs> Mike, Mike is going to have to close it out and do the closing and all that. So, uh, we'll see y'all. See y'all no, next week. See, see y'all next week. <laughs> this concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host Ron, originating from Florida State's Winery in Lando Lakes, Florida. Florida Estates Winery is located at 25241 State Road 52 in Landa Lakes, Florida, four miles west of Interstate 75 or east of U.S. 19 and U.S. 41. For more information on Florida Estates Winery, visit the website at floridastateswines.com or call 813-996-2113. That's 813-996-2113. The winery is open daily, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.